This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. Guys, Today we have with us one of the greatest American newspaper columnists, probably ever, undoubtedly on the Mount Rushmore, author of multiple bestsellers, David Brooks is here, and we're going to talk about the next chapter of the American story. So let's set this up. The Bible describes something pretty remarkable in the book of Deuteronomy uh, in chapter 26, and that's the ceremony of the first fruits, Bikurim in Hebrew. God instructs the Israelites that when they eventually enter into the promised land and they begin to farm, they have to sanctify the first fruits to blossom in their fields and they bring them to the temple. And upon arrival in Jerusalem, the farmer would stand before the altar and he would declare that he's brought the fruits as God commanded. But instead of concluding there, the farmer would then go on to actually recite the history of the Israelites as a people. The stories of Jacob wandering in the land of Aram, enslavement in Egypt, God's salvation of the people, and on and on and on. So what on earth does any of this have to do with farming? And in fact, biblical commentators, ancient and modern, Jewish, Christian, or neither, have sought for centuries, really for millennia, to supply a satisfying answer to the question. But if I may, I actually think the solution lies in appreciating the two forces that sustain a healthy society. The first is technology. The late Rabbi Norman Lamb, in a remarkable essay called The Religious Implications of Extraterrestrial Life, wrote that an unprejudiced reading of the biblical text leads us to the conclusion that the capacity for creation is the primary meaning of man's divine image. God wishes us to be like him, and to be like God is, first and foremost, to be creative, to help complete the work of creation. The Bible actually doesn't valorize the Israelites' sojourn in the desert, where God provided for all their needs directly. The aim was always for the Israelites to arrive in the promised land and assume responsibility for their own needs through a new agricultural sector, eventually through greater urbanization. And so the farmer bringing first fruits to the temple, in other words, is a way to sanctify technological progress. But societal flourishing requires not only technology, but memory. It's not enough for farmers to find new and better ways to grow things. The farmers and the larger community to which they belong need to cultivate a common story, a sense of tradition, an identity, and they need to remember their Abrahams and their Sarahs, their Jacobs, their Egypts. Technology is about what we can do, but memory is about who we are. Technology is about advancing society's capabilities, but memory is about advancing society's character. And if ever there were a society in the last 2,000 years or so that held out the possibility of maximizing actually both of these forces, technology and memory, it's probably the United States of America. And for all the doom and gloom of the present dispensation, I actually think it's worth thinking carefully now more than ever about how we make good on that potential. So to unpack all of this, I invited on Quite simply, one of the greatest public thinkers in American life, a man who truly needs no introduction, he's David Brooks. David, thanks so much for being here. Great to be with you. I enjoyed your explication, your drosh right there. Well, thank you. And I actually want to hop right from there to outline one way of thinking about the problems that we face now. So if we think about the generation that came of age in the 70s through the 90s that now 
dominates a good chunk of our political and cultural institutions. So what we might call the yuppies or, or the bobos, to use terminology that you popularized, the closest thing that generation has to a patron saint or like a religious icon is probably Martin Luther King Jr. So for left leaners, King represents kind of like the political fight against social inequality. And for right leaners, King puts forward a vision of color blindness that resonates with the meritocracy. And to go with the Bobo terminology that you've popularized, so there's a bohemian MLK who kind of unlocks better government and a bourgeois MLK who unlocks better commerce. But what's most striking to me is that both of these readings of MLK basically ignore the fact that King is a theologian, right? He's not just Dr. King, he's Reverend King. And his understanding of American history, where it's been, where it's going, all of that, it's taken straight out of the Bible, the histories of Exodus and Joshua, prophetic visions like Amos and Isaiah, but you almost never hear any of this stuff when the yuppies and the bobos talk about Reverend King. So my question to you, first of all, is why not? Right? Why is this generation kind of allergic to public theology? And how does that help us understand the world that they built? Yeah, I guess I'd go back to a book called A Stone of Hope, which was written about a decade ago. And the author, whose name I'm now forgetting, says there were two civil rights movements. One was a northern progressive movement that was based on the idea that if you, we just educated people, then they would drop segregation because they would realize it's inconsistent with our founding ideals. And you just explained it to them and they would cure things. The second, the other part of uh, the civil rights movement was southern and prophetic Chappelle is the name of the author of the book. And that was a religious movement. And he says the civil rights movement wasn't a political movement with a religious fringe. It was a religious movement with a political fringe. And King was very much in this tradition, along with many others. And the core element here was the concept of sin, that man is sinful in his deepest nature, King said, and that to get people to stop segregation, it was not enough just to offer them sweet reason and education. You really had to confront them with the, the evil of their sin right in their face and force the sin to be exposed. And so it was a much more aggressive form while being also much more pacifist. And so King really is a deeply religious figure and not only religious, but a prophetic figure. And that's a, a much once darker and also more hopeful spiritual tradition that I think is alien to a lot of people who would constitute the Bobo class. So how would talking more about sin, right? Because I feel like American society is very into talking around the margins of theology, right? So we make significant use of concepts like guilt or fault or punishment. But one thing we tend to avoid is that word that you just mentioned is sin. So what would talking about sin, right, whether in an individual or a national context do for American society moving forward? Yeah, I was on a TV show about a decade ago, and I was talking about a book I was then writing, the book that turned into a road to character, and it was about one's own confrontation with your own sin. And I got an email the next day from an editor of a publishing house, not my own editor, but from a different house. And he said, I love the way you talked about that book, but I wouldn't use the word sin. It's too depressing. I would use the word insensitive. Hmm. And I felt like saying, eh, I don't know, insensitive is not really sin. And so I sent <laughs> this email to my own publisher, my own editor. And he said, well, that's why you're writing the book. Right, right. Uh, but a lot of people, when they hear the word sin, they think, oh, sexual repression or depravity of Puritan theology. And so I, I talked to a lot of people, how do we talk about sin in a modern context that people will hear? I think one of the ways I've learned is through the concept of disordered loves, which was a concept of St. Augustine, that we all love a lot of things. And we all know some loves are higher than others. And if you tell me a secret and I blab your secret at a dinner party, I'm putting my love of popularity above my love of friendship. And we all know that's disordered. And so I, I think one way to describe sin is putting a lower love above a higher love, putting love of money over love of family. 
et cetera. And I think that way you get out of the dark depravity that some people associate with sin and really describe really just the normal human imperfections of, of people who are, who are weak and who settle for smaller pleasures when deeper joys are available. So one of the things that's so interesting about contemporary America, I think, is that we have a very hard time, as you pointed out, right? that's why you're writing books like this, we have a very hard time reckoning with sin, but I think particularly at a national level, because I think we tend to think of sin, maybe even like original sin, as somehow in tension with exceptionalism, which is another thing that sort of defines how Americans think about themselves and have been very successful, both kind of individually and as a collective. But here, I think, you know, one of the thinkers that you've pointed to at several places in your published works in The Second Mountain, which is your recent book, you point him there as well as Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who kind of distinguishes between a contract view of society and a covenant view of society, where a contract is about sort of transactional coming together just for the purpose of being able to succeed individually, whereas a covenantal society is one that talks about how to transform ourselves into something better. But it struck me as I was reading that that passage in your work that another thing that a covenant can do for us is sort of provide us a different way of thinking about exceptionalism, meaning, as you point out actually in several places in your work, the Israelites, you know, the Bible speaks of them as an exceptional people, but not because they're exceptionally good or well-behaved. In fact, they're quite a rotten people, or at least they're depicted as such often throughout the Bible. And yet, how good you are from the very beginning doesn't seem to have like a directly proportional relationship with chosenness. So what can America, which I think laudably wants to hold on to notions of chosenness or exceptionalism, and yet at the same time could also benefit so directly from a concept of sin and the notion that we've failed and need to repent for some of our actions. How can we use perhaps that sort of biblical sense to create sort of a more healthy or more durable and sustainable American exceptionalism? When you're a kid, you look up to your parents and you think they're perfect and awesome and wonderful. And then roundabout adolescence, you discover they're not always that. And then you go through this phase of revolt where you think, well, if they're not completely wonderful, they must be completely awful. (laughs) And I'm afraid we've done that. And it's so crazy because then they all of a sudden become really smart again by the time you're around 18 or 20. It's so strange. Right. There's a Mark Twain line. (laughs) It's amazing how much my parents learned between the time I was 17 and 21. Right, right. So this is my basic challenge that I think we're going through. We're an Exodus story. What makes us exceptional? We're an Exodus story. Our ancestors, most of us, escaped oppression, crossed the wilderness, and came to the promised land. The pilgrims told themselves an Exodus story about themselves. The founders of the country wanted to put Moses on the great seal of the United States. And it wasn't the freeing from Egypt that they wanted to celebrate. It was the giving of the law. And so it was binding a people together through law. And so that was the Exodus story, was the story of the Western settlements. My ancestors who came here from Russia and Ukraine and Germany in the 1890s, they saw themselves very much as an Exodus story. Martin Luther King quoted Exodus more than the New Testament. And so this was seen as an Exodus story. I think that was our unifying narrative. Starting about five or six years ago, I would go around country and telling college students, you know, we're an Exodus country. We escaped oppression, came to the promised land. And a couple of them said to me, well, that's the sort of story that rich white guys say. It's not a story any of us believe, and we do not believe in that story anymore, because this is not a land of milk and honey. This is not a promised land. This is a land of genocide, racism, and slavery. And so in my estimation, they are taking the true horrors that did happen in this country and obviating the whole country and robbing us of our unifying national narrative. And so I think they've gone to the other extreme. And just as it's possible to 
marry and love a spouse who is flawed. I think it's possible to marry a and turn to covenant with and love a country that is deeply flawed. And somehow finding that mature love, that second love, is I think the process we have to struggle toward. Well, that actually is a great jumping off point for the thing that I really wanted to talk to you about, which is what I understand to be our mutual love of Bruce Springsteen. So my, I guess my first question is, what is Springsteen's best album and why is it Darkness on the Edge of Town? <laughs> well, I guess I would agree with you. Uh, Good, I think I'm glad. it is Darkness on the Edge of Town. My best song right now is um, Racing in the Street, that edition done at the Paramount Theater in 2009, which you can find on YouTube. Oh my God, I was literally just about to ask you about Racing in the Street. Okay, wait, so I want to hear this. This is amazing. Also my favorite song. Yeah. When I was a kid, I loved Jungle Land, which is operatic and lush. But now I think I've, I, you, when you get older, you like something a little more emotionally spare. <laughs> so I have this weird theory. I don't know if I'm sure someone else has thought of this, but I have this weird theory that in much the same way that Darkness in the Edge of Town as a whole is like a response tonally and emotionally to Born to Run. So I actually think that Racing in the Street is sort of the continued story of what happens in Thunder Road. And I think that Bruce himself hints at this all the time. So he plays those two songs together frequently, Live at the Roxy in 78. Famously, he plays one into the other. They both appear to take place in the same sort of locale. So going out tonight to Case the Promised Land in Thunder Road and, and Racing the Street, it's all the hot rod angels rumbling through this promised land. So they both take, kind of take place in the same area. And in fact, the woman in Thunder Road is named Mary and in Racing the Street, she doesn't have a name. But I kind of always thought about the man and the woman in Racing the Street as the young couple from Thunder Road, but like 20 years later. So what happens to the narrator and Mary between Thunder Road and Racing in the Street? First, let me celebrate Darkness and the, the creative choice that went into that, because for all of us, it was an act of great integrity to do that album. So he has two albums which are good, but were commercially unsuccessful. He's about to get dropped from his label if he doesn't produce an album that's successful. He produces Born to Run. He becomes a global superstar, cover of Time and Newsweek, when that still mattered. <laughs> and then he has some legal troubles with his producer, and he goes a bunch of years without doing an album. And the natural tendency for any ambitious person would be, okay, I'm a global superstar. Now I'm going to go really big. I'm going to release an album that will be big, popular, and I will become whatever, the Beatles. Instead, he goes small, who goes back to his roots, and he produces a small, dark album about his hometown. And he realizes that his mission is not to become a global superstar. It's to understand the people he grew up with. And so he goes back to that place and he calls it his samurai album because he's going right into their lives. And I think what he saw around him in those years, and it's in Racing in the Street, is people being ground down, a life where the economy is going down, where love is not lasting, and where depression is prevalent. His father's depression is a driving force in a lot of this album. His father would sit at the kitchen table with lights off and all Springsteen would see was the orange from his cigarette, from the lit cigarette. And so what you see is, is people essentially being ground down by life after the lavish and epic promise of their adolescence. So one of the things that Bruce does very well, and I think it's kind of underappreciated, is biblical commentary. I mean, there's tons of biblical imagery throughout Bruce songs. You know, Mary's Place is a really famous example, but the best one, I think, or maybe the most explicit one is actually in Darkness, and that's Adam Raised the Cain. One of the interesting things that kind of Bruce raises with that song is actually like, how could Adam have raised a cane? Like, what did Adam and Eve do wrong that resulted in a cane? 
And the Bible actually doesn't talk about the relationship between Adam and Cain. But Bruce joins the ancient rabbinical commentators in being totally fascinated about this. So first of all, I guess part one of this question is, what does Bruce teach us in Adam Raised the Cain about parenting? Mm, you know, you're, you've thought about this more. I'd like to hear your answer. I have not thought about this question. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> the reason I was so interested in this even more recently is because just even yesterday, I, I just saw a study come across my social media feed about how in our zeal to create these highly meritocratic competitive schools that we've created in our country, we've sort of ended up producing a generation of children who are just broken down and depressed and rates of depression and suicide are higher and anxiety is higher. And I actually was listening last night to Darkness sort of in preparation to this. You know, you hear this song from Cain's perspective about the relationship between himself and his father, Adam. And it strikes me that the Bible actually begins right where we are now with a parent who ultimately, despite their best intentions, just totally fails and produces a child who, who struggles, who doesn't have a sense of place and self. So I, I guess I, I was hoping to use this as like a larger springboard to think about where did we go wrong as parents in this generation and how do we regroup? Well, first, I'm thinking about Adam Ray's cane now, and I wonder how much Springsteen is thinking about himself as a cane. We think of him now as a global superstar, but when he was a kid, he was nicknamed Blinky because he blinked so much. He had so many nervous tics. He was such a loner, and his father detested the guitar, and Springsteen basically spent his life trying to prove to his father that he was doing something real. And in his Broadway show, he mentions that he has this dream after his father died of his father in a crowd, and he goes down and kneels next to his father, and they both watch Bruce on stage. Wow. And that guy on fire, that's me. That's me. See me. And I guess Springsteen felt unseen. You know, I think what's wrong with parenting these days emerged out of a good faith effort to try to make America more fair. In the 1950s, if you wanted to get into Harvard, if your father went to Harvard, you had a 90% shot of getting in. And the president of Harvard, the guy named Conant, decided that we can't win the Cold War if our leadership class is made up of blue bloods from WASP families. We have to make it fair, give people tests, and if Jews do well in tests, then Jews get to go to Harvard. And I think that was the right thing to do, but we've taken it to an extreme. And so now it strikes me as absolutely crazy that we select people into leadership class, and we steer people through life, and we structure an entire society based on one's ability to do well on tests between the ages of 15 and 25. It's just absolutely crazy. It's absolutely crazy to valorize the skills that make you a good McKinsey consultant and not the skills that make you a good home nurse. And yet we've stumbled into this extreme form of meritocracy, which A, elevates one really Brahmin class, which intermarries and reproduces itself and leaves everybody else behind. And to me, what's striking, and I saw a study on this, maybe that we saw the same study yesterday, that mental health problems are now more acute among affluent, highly educated children and among normal and average and below income children. And that's because of the, the intense pressure that parents have put on their kids. And, you know, I grew up in an immigrant home and we had some pressure, but ability was not so closely defined as lines on a resume at an early age. And, you know, I could get C's through high school and still get into the University of Chicago because right. the standards <laughs> just weren't that high. You've done all right. You've done all right. <laughs> okay. But I'm so glad I didn't grow up with the students I teach now. Right. It was much easier in my day. Hold on just one sec. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back. So in terms of what we do from here, 
you know, I've had several guests on this program. We had Nellie Bowles, your colleague at the Times. We've had Zena Hitz from St. John's College. We've had Tommy Collison from the Lambda School. What all of whom share in common is they've all sort of chosen a traditional faith and have chosen to either convert or just to adopt a faith as adults. How would you assess a decision like that? Would it be good for people in society to sort of adopt faith into their lives? And not just like sort of like spiritual, but not religious, but like, you know, faith in the sort of religious tradition sense. First, I've learned that, you know, you should go have a religion. (laughs) You either believe in it or you don't. (laughs) If you're going to do it, you should believe in it. But you might start by practicing and maybe belief will come. So I'll take two things. I have a great quote from a friend of mine named Rabbi David Wolpe, who's out in L.A., and it's about the distinction between spiritual and religious. I can't remember the whole quote, but the core point was that spiritual tends towards self-satisfaction because you're grading yourself on a curve. You're going to grade yourself on a curve. Religion puts up standards, and they're standards you will likely fail at. And so religion teaches you of your own shortcomings. Institutional religions teaches you of the shortcomings of society, and it gives you a structure within which to think about. It gives you a common story. And it gives you a common project. One of my favorite sections from Rabbi Sachs is he asked the very good question. The creation of the universe in the book of Genesis is done in nine verses or something like that. The creation of the tabernacle in Exodus, it's hundreds of verses, hundreds of extremely boring verses. Oh, yes. <laughs> so why were there so many verses on the tabernacle when the whole universe is created in just a few? And Sachs' explanation is that Moses was trying to take a fractious group of tribes and unite them into a people. And a people is a group of people with a common story. A people is also a group of people with a common project. They needed a common project to build. And so the tabernacle was the thing they used to build it. And so when you're within an organized religion, you have a set of institutionalized teachings. You have a great inheritance, say the Talmudic tradition, because you're probably not smart enough to think it all for yourself. And you have a set of rituals, and rituals really do create belief. So if you have a choice between being spiritual and religious, I'd be religious. Better be religious and not spiritual than to be spiritual and not religious, in my view. But you can't persuade, you can't really tell somebody to adopt a faith because of some list of pros and cons. The final thing I'll say, which is I've been thinking about this, and this is going to problematize everything, but how much do what we believe govern how we act? We had a rabbi in Washington who was in Orthodox shul, and it turned out he was spying on the women in the mikveh in the ritual bath and saving videos of them while they were naked. There's a famous evangelical who died recently, but after his death, it was exposed. This is a guy named Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias, yeah. That he really was a really brutal sexual abuser. And so how is it possible in each of those cases, and these are the grossest examples, of people who preached one thing and then lived entirely differently? How is it possible that a human being rationalize a life so totally at odds with the creed they've supposedly staked their life on. It just strikes me as a very weird part of human nature that we can spend your whole life saying one thing and then do the other, not just once, but repeatedly. That's what makes religion so problematic. Religious people should be a lot better than they are, and they should be a lot better than atheists. And in my experience, they're not. And so, I don't know, maybe the utilitarian reason for joining a religion is not a great one because there still seem to be a lot of sinners in religion. Right. I mean, you could argue the entire premise, at least the biblical religion, is precisely that human beings are very bad at being good. And yet are made in the image of God. So you've got this yes. this, this division within each self. Judd Apatow, the director, uh, one of my favorite directors, has this wonderful observation where he talks about the difference between plot and story. 
where plot is what we think we're getting from a, let's say from a movie, and the story is what we actually need from the movie. So I think the example that he used was super bad, which, you know, what we think we're getting is a story about like two kind of fairly gross high school boys coming of age and having a good time. That's the plot. The story is about two people who realize that they have an incredibly precious friend and in many ways they're just never going to have something like this again. So that kind of prompted me to think that way about some of our most enduring narratives. You talked earlier about the book of Exodus. I want to prompt you to think about plot versus story and some of the other foundational tales from that tradition. So what about King David, right? The plot of the King David story is, you know, about how power consolidates in ancient Israel. That's the plot of the King David narrative. What's the story of King David? Yeah, I, I, Ian Foster, the novelist who was, I guess, in the early 20th century, he said plot is the king died and then the queen died. A story is the king died and then the queen died of grief. And so what's been added there is why and the human emotion. And so for a kid, the story of David is the story of the underdog, right? And so when you're eight and four foot tall, you love that story. I think kids love to read about dinosaurs because they dream of being big and powerful. But then the story becomes one of a deeply sinful man doing good things. And so that's the essence of the David story of deeply flawed leaders who are nonetheless good. And that's the mature love that we talked about earlier. And also the story of a man who was both a poet, a musician, and a king. And it is, even despite his obvious flaws, it's a story of a really fulsome version of a human life and someone who can write the Psalms and, and feel the depths of grief that, frankly, I never feel in our politicians. You know, I spent a lot of time interviewing politicians, and a lot of them live almost entirely public lives, and they don't have some of the internal drama that David had within itself. A journalistic colleague of mine said, you know, they can never make the Sopranos our political class because Tony Soprano, he had a lot going on inside. Right. <laughs> and it's not clear that a lot of our leaders have a lot going on inside. But story is what gives meaning. And, it, and it's worth noting, you know, there was a guy, Jerome Bruner, who's a sociologist or something, who said there are two kinds of knowledge, paradigmatic knowledge and narrative knowledge. And paradigm knowledge is this kind of stuff you put in a legal brief. Narrative knowledge is what's in a story. And it's distinguished by two really great traits, how things change across time, and two, how multi-causal events happen. It's hard with our limited frame of logic to really explain multi-causal events, but a complicated story, whether it's a biblical story or the story of David or Brothers Karamazov, you see multiple people with multiple causal things driving them intertwining into one unified series of events. Narrative is just beautifully complicated and beautifully steeped in what we are, which is meaning-making machines. We don't want things to just happen. We make meaning out of random events because we, we just can't live in a world without meaning. Are space billionaires good guys or bad guys? <laughs> I don't mind if they want to spend their money exploring. I think it's better than giving money away to Stanford. Stanford has too much money. <laughs> right. I mean, I guess the way I think about it is one of the interesting things about biblical prophecies, to, to kind of come back to a point you made earlier about America sort of having this prophetic tradition that's mostly Southern generated and it's also minority generated, particularly from the African-American community, is what's incredible about the prophetic tradition that kind of caught my eye in the space dialogue is Martin Luther King Jr.'s politics are like totally incoherent without the prophetic tradition. 
primarily because King is like engaged in what we now can see all these years later is a project with a heavy dose of utopianism about it. I mean, he was trying to achieve some things that are really, really, really difficult to achieve. And you could almost accuse him as people have of magical thinking, right? Like the arc, the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The only way that makes sense or is coherent is within the prophetic tradition. Like God will rescue us from Egypt. We're an Exodus nation, as you said, God will rescue us. When you think of space travel, it kind of strikes me as sort of a similar thing, right? Like the idea that we will, that we can sort of slip the bonds of of gravity, quite literally, I suppose, or that we can bring the word of God to the, or values or whatever you want to substitute for that, to the four quarters of the universe seems like the kind of thing that's sort of either metaphorical or allegorical or magical thinking. But space billionaires are actually making it happen. Like maybe they're heirs of the prophetic tradition, not in a political sense, but in a technological sense. Well, I do think one of the things the prophetic tradition has given America is this eschatological sense. Mm. This sense, you know, as Lincoln put it, we're the last best hope of Earth. Think of that. We're the last. Like history rolls along for thousands of years. Suddenly comes America. We're done. (laughs) We're last. Right. (laughs) And God's plan for humanity will be completed on this continent. That was the basically the essence of Puritan theology. And the second piece of that essence is we're mightily screwing it up. Uh, And so the shame, (laughs) the city on the hill was like, We've been assigned this holy mission and we're screwing it up. And so I do think that eschatological drive drove people to come here. It drove people once they were in the East Coast, at least the European settlers, to go West. And you look at the diaries of the women who were in Boston about to go out to Iowa. They were asked, like, what's it going to be like when you wind up in South Dakota? Well, they imagined Cambridge, Massachusetts. They imagined white picket fences, colonial homes. And then they got out there and it was horrific. Uh, it was really hard to be an early pioneer. I mean, the first thing they built when they formed towns were insane asylums. So many people went insane. But that drive is really eschatological. It's to see the present from the vantage point of the future. There's a great book called Giants of the Earth about the settlers in South Dakota. And there's a farmer in there giving a visitor a tour of his farm. And he says, well, here's the farmhouse. Here's the corral. Here's the cattle. And the visitor says, well, I don't see anything. I just see prairie. And he said, well, I haven't built any of that stuff yet, but it's going to be here. (laughs) And so that sense of seeing the present from the vantage point of the future, I could say that these space billionaires are doing that. There's a frontier. They're going to go hit it and and see what's out there. (laughs) And it may be self-indulgent. It may be wasteful. Maybe they should give their money to the poor. But that drive to explore frontiers can't be anything but a good thing. I'd love to close with uh, a question about the narrative trajectory of contemporary America. So, you know, as you said earlier, we're an exodus nation. And that really, that kind of framework really appeals to me. You could probably argue that at some point in the 20th century, it could be as early as FDR, you know, who talks about the journey to the promised land, but probably around the time, let's say, of Reagan and then Obama. I I look at Reagan and Obama as kind of like the two political theologians who attempt most explicitly to advance the American story from the book of Exodus to either the book of Deuteronomy or the book of Joshua or something that takes place in the promised land. So, you know, Reagan talks about a shining city on a hill and he's referring back to sort of John Winthrop. But that entire imagery, as Reagan was well aware, is about the Israelites settled in the promised land being, a you know, a, um, a beacon or being a model. And Obama, for his turn, sort of has the left-wing version of it, which is we're the Joshua generation, right? We're the generation that has to kind of pick up where the Exodus generation left off. So with that in mind, where does the the Biden presidency take us in the story, in the American story? 
Yeah, Obama titled his first volume his memoir, Promised Land. I guess I would say you've got to reconcile with all the voices who feel left out of the Exodus narratives. It's easy for the descendants of immigrants to feel we're Exodus, but if you're the descendant of people who are brought to the country in chains, it's not the same. It's just a different experience. Or if you were here before the Europeans came, it's not the same. And so I do think we have to have a narrative that includes them. And I guess I would tell a redemption story, which is basically Lincoln's second inaugural. We made a promise. We tried an experiment. We screwed it up in massive waves. But the arc of the universe, the out of sin, out of fall, comes redemption. And we still have the possibility to save it. And I think we need to tell that story. I think that's a story that everyone can see themselves in. Amen. David, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Ari. Good to be with you. We're an exodus country, and that means we have a particular way of thinking about where we've been and where we're going. But I think we might also say that we're just as much an Isaiah country, which means we need a sense of how the next time we as a nation take that journey towards salvation and the time after that and the time after that, we do it better than we've done before so that we may not just as a country, but as one among a whole family of nations so that we may transform the world for the better speedily in our days. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. And if you like what you heard, just head into Apple Podcasts or into iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, that's it for now. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.